Welcome to our Painesville Assembly of God podcast. Our desire is to connect people to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. If this message touches your heart, we'd love to hear about it. Email us at info at or visit PainesvilleAG.com. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to your faith. Good worship and church, right? And it was wonderful having SEU um, come and be guest worship leaders and give, give your teams a, a break and a chance to enter in and worship, but you guys did awesome. Thank you. And uh, such, such a great, great spirit here. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Pastor and Jamie. You guys have been so extraordinarily kind to us, and we just want to say thank you for the open door to be able to minister here at this great church and see what the Lord is doing here. So we really deeply appreciate that. Hey, listen, um, I have some good news and some bad news. Um, the good news is we're leaving. Um, the bad news, good news for you, because we typically wear on people, uh, but the bad news is we'll be taking the Holy Spirit with us. I'm really sorry about that. And um, so how many of you plan on taking the Holy Spirit with you, right? He lives inside of you. But, um, but if you're interested in uh, taking some of us home with you, you can. We have our materials back there. There'll be either a blessing or a curse, depending how you view us. Um, but there'll be, I pray there'll be a blessing. I want to highlight um, two books real quick. We've got this uh, green book in victorious Philadelphia Eagles colors. I saw the beginning of the game today, and there's in the normal going down the tube, and I fell asleep. And I woke up with my phone blowing up with, we pulled it out from all my Philadelphia friends, and so I didn't even see the victory. Oh, well, who cares? But this book is all about how to pray with other people so they can experience the power and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it's really helpful if you're in any level of leadership in a church, especially if you lead a life group. How many know someone's living room is a great place for people to be baptized in the Spirit? It's super easygoing. If you work with kids, there are special chapters in here on how to pray with children, how to pray with students. Really, really helpful stuff uh, in that book, Helping Others Receive the Gift. And then this brown square book, I'm not smart enough to write this one, but we worked like crazy for almost 10 years to get this book back in print. Uh, called The Real Faith by the late Dr. Charles S. Price. And his family was finally so gracious to give us permission uh, to get this back in print. But it was so important for me, honestly, outside of the Bible, which stands on its own, this is the most important Christian book I've ever read. And uh, it really transformed and helped my thinking as, as a, um, in my late teens and early 20s and so many times since then. Um, most people don't know who Dr. Charles S. Price was. He was a British guy. And, um, and he, he had in his lifetime, aside from the lady evangelist, Amy Semple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare Church and uh, Angelus Temple and all that stuff, he had the largest, aside from her, he had the largest Pentecostal healing ministry on earth. And uh, so many people, uh, leaders came to Christ through him, um, uh, influenced so, so many people. Um, but uh, incredibly, uh, his, his revelation on faith is very, very different and very healing for people that have been burned by maybe a little out-of-balance faith message. You know, a lot of people think faith is you say the right things and you do the right things, and it's like a vending machine, and you get what you want out of the bottom of it. And if you just say, you know, a Porsche, 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 then you're... Your Yugo turns into a Porsche and all this stuff. And Dr. Price shows us that faith is not a human manipulation of God. But instead, Dr. Price unfolds in this. It's, it's almost it's as fresh as it was written yesterday, even though it was written in 1940. But um, instead, he shows us that everywhere in the Bible where the source of faith is revealed, 
It's not ever coming from between the ears of a human being, but faith is a spiritual commodity that God gives us. You know, for like, for God has given to every man the measure of faith, the ability to be saved, or faith comes as a gift of the Spirit or a fruit of the Spirit in our life. And he shows us time and time again that if you're trying to have faith, that's probably not faith. And our posture in faith is not, not striving, not trying to, but instead is getting in the presence of God and emptying ourselves and filling ourselves with the Word of God and filling ourselves with the presence of God so that the things of God become second nature to us. It's just a very different posture, and I think you'll find it really helpful and healing uh, and, and uh, uh, encouraging in your life. If you've ever been told that there's something wrong with you or you would have, grandma would have been healed if you just would have had enough faith, this book will be a healing balm. But it's also very encouraging. And uh, over the years, I've done a lot of magazine article writing. And, and in the front of this is uh, a biographical thing, a uh, sketch that I did for Dr. Price for Heritage Magazine. And in there, you'll learn how a little 12-year-old girl from Missouri stumbled in his meetings, a Methodist girl, and how she was baptized in the Holy Spirit and saw all these healings, and his meetings would run for weeks, huge, huge, massive meetings, tens of thousands of people in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and how she was baptized in the Spirit. And the last night of the meeting, she ran out the back door in this big arena, ran out the back door, and her sister Myrtle chased her out and said, Kathy, Kathy, what's wrong? And she said, the Lord just spoke to me. I'm going to do what Dr. Price did. I'm going to introduce my generation to the Holy Spirit and God's healing power and of course, she grew up, little Kathy grew up, Catherine Kuhlman, you know. But uh, some pretty, pretty amazing stuff, real interesting. Take advantage of that. If you, if you like to listen to teaching instead of reading on the CD rack back there, there's all kinds of CD sets. Like here's one of the character studies on the anointing. There's two volumes of that that look at what the Bible shows us, how people interacted with the power of the Spirit. This one is... Uh, Elisha and Samson, and then volume two is David and Saul, and there's all kinds of stuff on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. This is super helpful if you want to be using the gifts called moving in the gifts of the Spirit. And then there's some specifically on some of the gifts that people have most questions about, like this one is on the word of knowledge and discerning of spirits. And we even have a series back there to help you in your relationship with your mother-in-law called Freedom from Manipulation, and that will be a, a great, a great, great help. So anyway, take advantage of that, and uh, sorry, I know the pastor's mother-in-law is here, so I'm giving it to her. But anyway, those are all back there. If you go, hey, I'm too cool for physical media, we do somewhere, I think I have one up here, maybe not. We do have those media cards uh, that Rochelle can help you with. It's a USB drive. It's got a little flip-out USB drive on it, and it has everything on the teaching rack is on there. Plus, everything out of all the DVDs we've ever done, all the videos on there as well, which is entirely different. It's like 25 hours of teaching on the Holy Spirit. It's like a Bible college on the Holy Spirit. And it's different material than I've shared this week, but the same, uh, uh, same approach to Scripture. And uh, you can listen to it. You can put it in your car stereo if you have a USB port on your car stereo. You can put it in your computer, smart TV, whatever. So if you're interested, she can hook you up. And all those proceeds go to help us in our ministry, uh, both here and overseas. So thanks for considering that. All right, we're going to dive into the Word of God tonight. Let me give you a little staff meeting for a moment. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to teach a little bit, and then we're going to go to a time of prayer uh, and believing God for healing in this room. A lot of times people say, well, you know, I mean, you know, I know God can, but a lot of people are uncomfortable with healing services because they feel so much pressure. Um, they, you know, I, I got to receive, and we're, a lot of times we're achievement-oriented. I just want to tell you, there's none of that here tonight. High expectancy, low pressure, 
All right? So if you've ever felt like, you know, I, I've got to get healed because I don't want to let all the people down that are praying for me. Throw all that malarkey out of the window. Let's just draw near to Jesus and see what he does tonight. All right? And so we're going we're gonna to pray for healing tonight. And a lot of people go, well, you know, because we all have we all have problems, right? You know, physical issues. There's not a person in this room that is in 100% perfect physical health. You know, you got a mole or a wart or something somewhere, right? Okay. You know, or a zit or whatever, you know, and it just happens. And so a lot of times we say, well, you know, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I've got, you know, my problems, you know, but, but Brother Blackbeard over there, you know, he's got a hook and a peg leg and a patch, and I'm pretty sure scurvy. I'm not sure if that's a word of knowledge or just an assumption, but, um, but either way, and I don't want to take his healing, you know. God has enough power to come down and restore all of us, no matter how small or how great, and it wouldn't even cause a brownout in heaven. So let's welcome God to do more rather than just a little. What do you say? So I want you to think right now, uh, let's just say, for example, if Jesus were here, um, what would you ask him to heal? What would you ask him? Stop for a moment and uh, personally, I mean, we'll pray for others as well, but personally, and no need is too small, no need is too great, no need is too unspoken or too secret. The Lord is here to help us. So uh, guess what? I guess we should recognize Jesus is here through the presence of his Holy Spirit, and he's here to help us. So we're going to do that in a few moments after the teaching, but also I know that there are many that have experienced baptism in the Spirit. The best, my best guess from Friday night and last night was right around 30 baptized in the Spirit for the first time, and maybe you were seekers of spirit baptism, maybe there were some at the altar that were pressing in and seeking, and, and the new language hasn't yet come for you. No big deal, it always does. What do you do? You seek until you find. And so tonight, if you say, or maybe you've just kind of been watching from the back going, I'm waiting to see, you know, some dark lord of the Sith action at the altar, and, and it didn't happen, so finally you're saying, okay, I'm ready now. I, I see they're not manipulating people. I'll go up there and receive. So tonight, we're gonna have two things going on at once. We'll have healing prayer taking place in the, in the seating area, okay? And then we're going to have anyone that wants to receive baptism in the Spirit to come up like we, like we did last night and the night before. Just touch your toes against the front edge of the steps, and, and we'll pray with you, and, and Jesus will do this work. If you're a long-term seeker, there's extra grace for you tonight to receive, and the pastors and myself uh, will come and, and gently pray with you. Is that a deal? Now, if you've got a problem, you go, well, I need healing, and, you know, I've got the, the rabies and the mange, and then, but I also want to be baptized in the Spirit, if you need both of those things, choose to come up to pray to be baptized in the Spirit. We see God all the time heal people as they're being baptized in the Spirit. So I hope that's, that's clear. I'll, I'll make more instructions later on, but just want to kind of let you know where we're going. All right. Well, let's spend some time looking at the Word of God. We're going to look at two portions of Scripture tonight. The first portion of Scripture is um, Jesus dealing with Bartimaeus, right? So we're going to look at Jesus' dealing with Bartimaeus. And then secondly, we're going to read Christ's command through his half-brother, James, writing the book of James. And, uh, you know, Jesus came from a blended family, same mom, different dad, kind of like a Brady Bunch thing, a divine Brady Bunch. But, um, but uh, so we're going to look at James's response and his teaching to us as believers about healing and so I want to invite you, if you would, to stand with me to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word. I have just, I hope you don't mind my quirks, but 
I just, I just want to value the word of God in every way. I want to give it the highest honor. I don't even like being on the platform when we, the word of God is read. It just deserves our fullest attention. But I want us to read out loud if we can. Uh, Paul told Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. So let's, let's devote ourselves and give him our best effort and energy. See the word of God speak the word of God, have it backfeed along with your voice and the corporate voice of all of us speaking the word of God. Let it get in your pores because the word of God is how God thinks, right? And I don't want to think like me. I want to ever increasingly think like God, not because I think I am God because you've figured out I'm not anywhere near that, but I want his image to be fuller and more complete in me. I want his way. How about you, right? So let's let the word of God really get in our hearts and, and challenge us tonight. All right, let's go to the next one, please. Read out loud with me if you would, please. Then they reached Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples left town, a large crowd followed him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting beside the road. When Bartimaeus heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, Next, please. Uh, Be quiet, many of the people yelled at him, but he only shouted louder, son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, tell him to come here. So they called the blind man, Cheer up, they said. Come on, he's calling you. Bartimaeus threw aside his coat, jumped up, and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked. My rabbi, the blind man said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see, and he followed Jesus down the road. Now from James, are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Let's pray together. Father, we just choose tonight to submit our thoughts and our ideas and our preconceived notions and our conjecture to your unchanging word. We just elevate your word higher than our thinking processes, higher than our understanding. Thank you, God, that I don't have to figure out the mystery of the cosmos to approach you, but instead I humble myself and receive from you and put my trust in your word. I just value your word. And I pray tonight, God, as we listen uh, to your word unfolding, that you will engender and stir faith inside each one of us to help us to believe you for more, Lord. And I pray, God, that you will not only come and heal people in this room, but you'll equip us and, and kind of push the easy button on this so that we will have courage and faith to step out and pray for people in our daily interactions to receive healing from this day forward and see your glory in those ways. Now, in the name of Jesus, I know this is the will of God. I welcome you, Lord. Would you increase supernaturally our ability to believe that you really are who you say you are, 
and you really do what you say you do. So Lord, I pray right now that you will just fill this room, Lord, like water coming to a new high water mark in our lives and in this church of courage and faith to believe you. We welcome healing gifts to increase. And Lord, I pray that in the days to come that the seeds planted tonight will reap a harvest of an avalanche of constant healings flowing, Lord, through Painsville. I just pray, God, there would be such grace that people would be healed in the kids' ministry, in the youth ministry, Lord, even at the seniors' buffet, Lord Jesus. I just pray, God, you would just heal people. Let it just be. We just welcome a chain reaction of healings uh, in an exponentially greater way. Thank you for it, Lord. Amen. 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 You can be seated if you like. I do just have to issue a complaint. Uh, My wife and I noticed on your announcement slide this morning um, that your seniors ministry starts at 55. And I just want to tell you, that's not a good idea. I looked at my wife and I go, we're like four and a half years away from being at this. No disrespect to seniors, but you know, I mean, it's like, I don't even have my ARP card yet. So, uh, you know, just rethink that if you would, I'd appreciate it. I was personally insulted by that. All right. No, I'm teasing. Um, So, uh, when we think about uh, God's healing work, I think a good, this good jumping off place is to go to Jesus who did all things well, the fullness of God dwelling bodily in him. And so if we could go to the first scripture slide, please, go back to the very beginning, uh, the, the first scripture one we read, if we could. Um, so this is now um, Jesus with his disciples in Jericho. Maybe some of you have been to Israel. So Jericho is one of the largest Oh, settlements at one time, and there's some settlement there, basically a gas station and some other stuff there, some Bedouins, but it's, it's a, um, an oasis city, city of palms, and it's in the, the lowest inhabited city altitude-wise. It's below sea level. It's in a basin. The Dead Sea is one of the few basin lakes. There's three of them that have no outlet. One of them is in, in Siberia. Another one is Devil's Lake up in North Dakota. That's why they keep, Devil's Lake keeps on getting bigger and people losing their houses to it because there's no way for it to go because it's so low and there's no runoff from it. The Dead Sea is likewise one of those uh, basin lakes in a very low spot. If you drive out of Jerusalem, it takes, I don't know, 45 minutes or so by car to go to, to Jericho and then to the Dead Sea, which are right beside each other. And, but the Dead Sea is like barren desert, but Jericho is like this oasis of palm trees, a very, very beautiful. But you're driving downhill the whole time. You know, it's just um, interesting. So, so Jericho is, at this, at this time, you know, we know the walls fell down and all that stuff, but it's always been an habitation uh, there because it's, it's just that oasis spot. There's water there. There's all these things. So Jesus and his disciples are leaving town. A crowd follows him. A blind beggar named Bartimaeus. So pause there. The Hebrew pre- prefix bar doesn't mean get sloshed. It means um, son of. Like the prefix Beth means house of, house of Lehem, Bethlehem, you know, and Beth Shan and all those things, a house of, you know. So Bar means son of. So Timaeus would be sort of the Aramaic way of saying my name, Timothy. So it's like saying Tim's son. I mean, this put some reality instead of making these people vague, faceless historical characters. You know, it's your friend Tim's son. Now, back in uh, the time of the scriptures and the New Testament, particularly, they in the Old Testament as well, but they didn't have like social safety nets from the government that we have. 
Um, and I know our governments are imperfect and everything, but man, if you travel abroad, you are really thankful when you come back to America. Great countries, wonderful cultures, um, but you know, there's just a, a lot of freedoms and liberties and help that we enjoy here. And I know we get all whiny about it, but it's, trust me, it's, it's the best. And um, if you've not been outside of the country, and it's just really a, a, an astounding blessing to be, to be an American. But anyway, in the time of the scriptures, in the New Testament, the way that um, those that were unable to work because of some sort of disability or physical issue, um, they would beg and they would station themselves. It was legally sanctioned. It's not like the guy out in front of Lowe's that has the will work for food sign and, and uh, yet but he gets in his Cadillac and drives home every day with a wallet full of tax-free cash, you know, and not, not that kind of, I know there are legit folks that are doing that, but you always kind of wonder, this was a vetted thing. You knew who they were and this is how they were socially taken care of. You know from the book of Acts that they would station themselves at either transit places or places of where you'd become tenderhearted, like going into the gate beautiful of the temple where Peter saw the lame beggar, you know, those sorts of things. So this was a sanctioned thing. They would go and congregate in those areas and people would help and support. Biblically, there are three main types of giving. There are others, but the three biggies, the tithe or the tenth, okay, which people go, that's not in the New Testament. You've not read the New Testament. There's references to tithing there. And then secondly, um, the offering, which would be on top of that, something like you would feel led to do like a missionary or a special project or, you know, anything, just even out of extra thanksgiving towards the Lord. And then finally, alms, that's taking care of people in need. And that could be done directly or certainly uh, can be done through directed projects from the church. And those are the big three. So this would be the almsgiving uh, to help. And so so this is kind of the constructs going on now. Now, so this is happening. Jesus now, again, he's not died on the cross, not risen again from the dead. So we're still kind of in those feathered edges of the old and new covenant where, where some things are old covenant and some things are becoming new and, and they're being realized in a greater way. And because, you know, Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law the old way, but he came to fulfill it, you know, so that's what he does. And so... From the book of Malachi, where the Old Testament writings stop until the Gospels begin, there were about 400 years of time there, and a, and a lot of things happened there. Is it okay if I come down here? If you go, I can't see you, you just say, thank you, Lord, because I'm really ugly up close, all right? But um, in this 400 years, um, a lot goes on. I've heard people go, oh, it's a 400 silent years. It's just because there were no writings um, that made it into the Bible during that time. But there's a lot of writings. And if you've ever been curious about what happened between there, some big things happened there. Like, for example, Alexander the Great conquered Israel as well as most of the known world. Um, and then the, the Romanization of the Greek Empire happened there. Um, all of the, you know, uh, the Egypt-Rome stuff began to happen and Cleopatra. And I mean, all kind of, I mean, huge stuff going on there uh, systemically. Um, the tensions of the way Rome ran things is they would allow there to be a figurehead of the local culture kind of in place because they found it kept the peace. So they kind of let like, you know, uh, the Hasmonean dynasty in Israel, which would be like the Herods, um, you know, Herod the Great and, and Antipas and, and all those guys, um, they would 
the Rome, Rome would allow them to rule and live in their palace, but they didn't really have any power. But the people said, oh, well, even though Rome's really in charge, we still have our stuff, and they wouldn't revolt. So all these things are going, lots of stuff going on. If this sort of stuff interests you, there's a very easily accessible book free. You can find it online. You probably, if you have a Catholic Bible, it's in there. Um, it's in the Apocrypha, which is not Bible, uh, but it is, uh, um, there's one particular book in there called First Maccabees. Anybody ever heard of that? So First Maccabees is not scripture. It's not like you'll claim promises and learn about God. First Maccabees is just the history of what happened between Malachi and, and the Gospels. Second Maccabees is not good history. It was written by a monk smoking peyote, I think. Um, so you know the difference. Okay, but you learn in there, and it's, it's, it's pseudepigraphical, they call it. Someone saying, I'm the guy that wrote the first one, but it really wasn't. It's historically been proven. But it's just good history. It's like reading Josephus or Eusebius, some of the good historians. First Maccabees is that way. And you learn about a lot of things that are taking place during those 400 years that really help us to understand this culture and what's going on. And then on top of that, then how Christ is responding through his ways to do his work. So let me share just a couple of those things with you. So with all the political unrest that was happening with the Romanization of the Greek Empire that took place and all these things happening, some of the ways that the, the Roman government was trying to allow the culture to kind of remain so there wouldn't be revolts, some of the things that happened and took place during this time, developments that took place, number one was a thing called the Sanhedrin. You ever heard of the Sanhedrin before? So that's kind of like the Jewish ruling council that could only rule really in spiritual matters. So like a modern kind of an idea that would be like Sharia law, that kind of a thing, you know. And, and so it's kind of like, well, we know we handle spiritual things. And maybe, you know, Sharia law is a little different, but it's, it's a similar thing. And so the Sanhedrin, that came about during that time. That did not exist um, prior uh, before the book of Malachi, some embryonic ways of it did, but it really came into development, and Rome's like, okay, hey, we'll give you guys a little bit of power so you can blow off some steam, but, you know, if you step out of line, we're going to come and squash you like bugs, right? And so this was, this was happening. So with the Sanhedrin, do you remember any followers of Jesus that were members of the Sanhedrin? Nicodemus, yeah? How about the tomb lender? Joseph of Arimathea, right? Yeah. And so, so and, and perhaps some others as well. So with this, some people that gave their lives to follow Christ out of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Some other things that happened were the schools of the rabbi began to develop. So because Rome wanted to generally not promote education of the people that they were ruling over because educated people typically go, hey, wait a minute, there's an injustice here, this needs to be fixed. Um, they, they wanted to, you know, that, like a lot of times, even with the conquest of, uh, of uh, um, the captivity of Israel, remember they took all the intelligentsia, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all this, they took them with them to Babylon, you know. They didn't want to leave them there. They left just people to kind of trim the weeds, weed whack the fence, you know, because they, they helped keep their, their conquest in place. In the same way, Rome wasn't really big on educating the locals, if you wanted education, you'd go to a Roman center, you would go to Heliopolis and Egypt, you know, basically Cairo area, Alexandria, uh, or you'd go to Rome, you'd go to one of these major 
you know, Roman centerpieces named after one of the Caesars or something, and that was a, a big deal. So, um, so they, they, uh, the Jews responded kind of organically by starting the schools of the rabbi. And what the schools of the rabbi basically look like, rabbi simply in, in Hebrew means teacher, okay? And the rabbis would typically lead the local branch office of the temple called a synagogue. And synagogues developed in the, in the intertestamental period too, another one of the major developments. Sanhedrin, synagogue, schools of the rabbi are the big three. And so the synagogues were like local expressions because people couldn't really travel and sometimes, and depending on Roman uh, rule and those sorts of things. And there were only three pilgrimage feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacle, where you had to go to Jerusalem. But otherwise, it was very, you couldn't like just go from the Galilee to Jerusalem every week for worship. So you had a local synagogue that was led by a trained rabbi that had learned under someone else. Like, for example, the Apostle Paul, which rabbi did he train under? Do you remember? Gamaliel, yeah, which was one of the highfalutin, you know, gourmet ones, kind of a pedigree sort of a thing. And, And they were at very various levels. And because there wasn't really like what we know to be a college that was available, the rabbis would travel their region. And of course, they were trying to get people to attend synagogue as well, but they would travel their region and they would begin, you can read about this in in Maccabees, uh, they they would travel the region and they would look for young men that were sharp, that had potential, that had aptitude and common sense and were perceptive. And the way the rabbis would do it is very nonchalant. They would kind of see, and then they weren't creeping, but they'd kind of look, and they'd go, hmm, this, this one, you know, I, I did a blood draw. There's more midichlorians in this one, you know, and so, uh, so they, they would perceive that, and they would just simply say, they would come up to him nonchalantly and say, follow me, and then they'd turn away, and they'd walk away, and if you were a young person, you understood how this worked, and if that was a rabbi you wanted to follow, you would drop everything and you would just follow the rabbi. You wouldn't go home. You wouldn't tell your parents. You'd just disappear. And everyone would go, where's, where's little Johnny? Oh, he's Gamaliel. Said, follow me. And oh, our son, our son, he's, oh. And for a period of time in your young adult years, late teenage, early 20s, you would follow that rabbi. And the statement was said, and you probably heard this before, but the dust of the rabbi would get on you because you'd follow them and they'd kick up dust from their sandals and it would just get, in other words, the ways, the wisdom, the, all these things would be incorporated in your life. And then after a period of time, depending a few months, a few years, then the rabbi would go, I've taught you everything to know. Now go and, go and do what Yahweh, what God wants you to do. And so you would, you know, whether you had a, a a, a normal business, you were a carpenter, you were, you know, you worked for Verizon or whatever back then. Uh, whatever your job was, you would then be a leader, though, and spiritual and all those things, having been trained by a really wise mentor in that way. Now, culturally, if you were a young person, you would never go. It was unacceptable to go to the rabbi and say, I want to apply. Do you have an application? I want you to be my rabbi, because that's not how this worked. In fact, that would be a hard no. So you, that was never the way it was. You had to be invited in those ways. And you had to be the upper crust. I mean, like the high SAT scorers, you know, kind of, kind of idea. Um, certainly, you know, someone of low social standing. Because a lot of the rabbis would get super egotistical. And they would only want like the super wealthy or the super this or the super that. And so check out with some of these ideas going on now. 
check out what's going on in this story. So Jesus leaves town, a blind beggar calls out, oh, I know there's one more thing I meant to tell you. Um, Within this time, because of the Roman oppression, Greek and Roman oppression, um, they began to search, the religious scholars began to search the scriptures because they knew in their history, you know, you've read some of the Old Testament before, I'm sure, maybe all of it, you know what happens, it happens in cycles. They really serve the Lord and things go well and then they start living off the momentum of their machinery and things go south and then they fall into some sort of oppression, some sort of whatever, and we kind of do this sometimes too. And then when they're at the bottom of the barrel, then they call it, God, help us, save us, send a deliverer, send a rescuer. And then the Lord sends a judge or he raises up a king or something like that happens when they're repentant and they get back on the, you've seen those cycles happen. So because they were at the bottom of the barrel in between the Testaments being conquered by by Alexander the Great and then Rome, they ended up in the spot going, God, help us. So they began to discover and look back in the scriptures and say, the Bible promised the Messiah. And what does the Bible say about him? So they began to discover all these schools of the rabbi and the religious leaders began to really dig in and look for what are the strong biblical indicators that this person is the Messiah. And so they began to check these certain things going, oh, this is like, for example, um, a lot of people don't realize this one today, but uh, one of the big indicators was you will know the Messiah because he does one or does the four un, uh, yet undone healing miracles. Like you read in the Old Testament, they're healing of leprosy, healing of barrenness, raising the dead, that's a big one, healing of snake bite, and a bunch of other stuff, and uh, Hezekiah's boils, and you know, there's a lot of healings in the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, up to the ministry of Jesus, there is no one that was healed of blindness, deafness, being lame, or being mute. You ever thought about that? Yet it's prophesied in the book of Isaiah six times and once in Jeremiah, like in that day, the day of the Messiah, the deaf will hear the words of the book, the lame will leap like a deer, the blind will see. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to open up the eyes of the blind. That's why in John 9, when Jesus healed the blind man, they said, we have never even heard of such a thing of someone being uh, blind being healed. Because that was during this time between the Testaments, they're trying, they're longing, God help us. How will we recognize the Messiah? And they're looking for those signs. So with some of these things in mind, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus was sitting beside the road in his beggar's position. When Bartimaeus heard that whom? Jesus of Nazareth. So they didn't use surnames back then. They used locations. Jesus is actually the kind of a mispronunciation, although trust me, your prayers are good addressed to him. The mail all gets forwarded. But it's basically the Hebrew name Joshua, the Lord who saves, right? Yeshua, you know. And so this is, this is who, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is how he had been noised abroad. You know, oh, hey, this guy from Nazareth came. What was his name? Jesus. Oh, and he did this healing and he cast out this devil. And man, he really... He really confronted the religious leaders that you know, have been really oppressing us and really challenged them, and they couldn't, didn't even have a good response. Where is he from again? He's from Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was the common way he was known in the early part of his ministry. Okay? When he heard that Jesus of Nazareth was nearby, he began to shout, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David. Wait a minute. Jesus' adopted dad was Joseph. 
What in the world does that mean? Well, during that time when they were looking for the indicators of the Messiah, one of them was he will be the descendant of David, one of the really strong, repetitive biblical prophecies. So notice what's happening. Everybody else is going, that's that Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus from Nazareth who does all the miracles. But look what Bartimaeus does. Jesus, I believe, I know you're the long-awaited Messiah. It's really interesting that all the seeing people couldn't see that, but the blind guy could, right? Because how many know there's no perceived disability that can keep us from a true revelation from the Lord? And so, uh, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then look at the next line. What's the crowd do? Put a cork in it, Bart. Stay in your social place. You're just a beggar. You know, take, take a mina or two and just be quiet. But what did he do? He cried out even louder. He doesn't want to let anyone keep him from Jesus. He cried out even louder. Next slide, please. Um, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He declared it even louder. One of the first declarations, public preaching, identifiers from outside of Jesus You are the Messiah. Peter would even do that later on at Caesarea Philippi. This was before then. Jesus, I believe you are the long-awaited Messiah of God. You are the son of David. That's a synonym for Messiah. Have mercy on me. No matter how people tried to suppress him, what was he doing? He was putting his faith in Jesus, wasn't he? To the point that he publicly declared it. Even to the point that people told him to be quiet, he didn't care. So now look what happened. Verse 49. When Jesus heard him, he stopped and said, him, tell him to come here. Now notice how the crowd changes. Cheer up, he's calling you. Hey, we're on your side. Hey, let's go with you, Bart. It's funny how fickle people are, but you see it happening. You see the human nature there? Okay, now look at the next one, please. Uh, Bartimaeus threw aside his coat. Now stop here for a moment. If you're a beggar, you have very limited means. You have very limited possessions, and if you've ever been in very impoverished areas, you know very often that people don't have extensive wardrobes when living in poverty, and I I know from our ministry in Indonesia, a lot of times the most prized possession in a family is that every one of their family members has their own blanket or has a robe to stay warm in the nights. It's a big deal. And when you, you know, something happens, a volcano erupts, you grab your blanket, you grab your cloak, and you leave everything else, and you run, because that's the most valuable thing, to be able just to stay warm. I mean, for us, we just go, you know, hey, Alexa, turn up the heat, or whatever it is, you know, but I mean, it's just a a different, different culture when you have very, very limited resources. And it could be said, we don't know this specifically from Scripture, but his cloak would likely be among his most prized possessions and most valuable possessions. And he just, it was just an encumbrance to him. He threw aside his cloak. It's interesting the Bible mentions that. And he runs to Jesus. And Jesus asks the best questions, doesn't he? Oh my goodness. What do you want me to do for you? And what does Bartimaeus respond? He's already identified you're the Messiah. And now he says boldly, almost importunately, I want you to be my rabbi. I want, to follow, I want to join your school, which you don't do. And 
Jesus says to him, uh, my rabbi, or the man says, my rabbi, my rabbi. The blind man said, I want to see. I want you to do one of the signs that only the Messiah can do. Moses couldn't heal the blind. Elijah couldn't heal the blind. Elijah couldn't heal the blind. I believe John the Baptist couldn't heal the blind. I believe you're the Messiah, and I'll come and do what only the Messiah can do. Notice where all of his faith is projected on, the identity of Jesus. Huge, this massive sermon being preached from Bartimaeus' heart cry. And Jesus said to him, go, for your faith has healed you. Now, you probably have all heard, well, you know, some teaching, well, you need to have faith to be healed. And, you know, and we make this thing way complicated. We're like, well, you know, I've got a, a strange mixture of prickly heat and poison ivy in my brain. And the only way I can itch it is to think of, you know, sandpaper or something scratchy. And, you know, it's a really difficult, I'm really in a strong predicament. So I need some real high level faith for this. So we sit there and we get a migraine trying to have faith. Uh, you know, and, and we make things way too difficult. So let me ask you a question. How many of you believe that Jesus died and rose again? It's a historical fact with spiritual implication, Yeah. Okay, now I look out and I see some seniors here, but I don't see anyone that looks old enough uh, to have been an eyewitness. And so, um, you know, none of us were there, but how many of you actually believe that Jesus died and rose again more than you believe that you'll have breath in your lungs in the next few moments, right? So think about that. You have faith in the most important things the identity of Jesus. Notice what Jesus commends on this guy is not that he had blind healing faith, faith to see. No, no, no. What does the text show Bartimaeus' faith was in? The identity of Jesus. I want to tell you, if you try to have faith outside of who Jesus is for something, it's just a detour, Jesus is the object and focus. And if you believe Jesus rose from the dead, anything else is small potatoes. Stop, stop getting a migraine trying to have faith for God to heal you of whatever you're struggling with. Keep your faith focused on Jesus. He's the object and the focus. Everything else is a detour. That was a good spot to go. Woohoo! I'll drink to that. Okay, so, so then notice what he said. Go for your faith has healed you. Instantly the man could see and What? He followed his rabbi without invitation. Now, again, this is a little extra biblical, but there's some writings written after, after the Bible, the canon was closed. We don't add to the Bible, but good history. Um, you can read them called the Apostolic Fathers, like a big set of encyclopedias, uh, Irenaeus, Augustine, um, you know, Justin Martyr, um, uh, John of the Cross, all these guys. Um, and there's a dude in there named Polycarp. You ever heard of Polycarp before? Okay, so Polycarp was a guy that had some interaction on some level with John the Apostle. He ended up being the Bishop of Smyrna, uh, like uh, the, not Smyrna, Georgia, but the, you know, one of the seven churches of Revelation later on, and had, had some connection with the Apostle John who lived the longest being the Bishop of Ephesus and all that stuff after he did some prison time and came back. And so, uh, so Polycarp fits in there. The writings of Polycarp have been preserved. There's manuscripts everywhere. You can Google them. I don't do it now, but Polycarp, you can Google it. It means in Greek, many terrible fish. So that, no, it doesn't really. But anyway, so, um, but uh, it's Polycarp, 
writes in his writings something very interesting. There was a big question in the early church, in the second century church, a big question. Who were the 70? Remember the 70? Jesus sent out the 12 disciples, students, because they were of his rabbi school. That's what the followers of the rabbi were called, disciples. And he sent them out then to be apostles. He graduated them out and said, now you know, now go and replicate this, right? And then the next chapter, that's Luke 10, Luke 11, Jesus took 70 others that were not uh, disciples in that sense of being under his tutelage as a rabbi, under his school, the rabbi. Instead, he sent out 70 others. And there was a big, in the second century, there's a lot of debate. Well, who were the 70? What was so special about them? Because it, the, everything was kind of thought, thinking the apostles are the ones. But who are these 70? How did they get power to heal the sick and do all this stuff? And so Polycarp, through his lineage and connection with John, not lineage, but through his connection with John, asked questions and found out the names of some of them. And many of the early church fathers in, this, in these writings had their list of who the 70 were based on questions. Did you know that Bartimaeus, according to Polycarp, was one of the 70? Along with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and uh, John the leper and Mary Martha Lazarus. There's a quite interesting thing. Again, it's not Bible, but it's good history. But it kind of connects us saying the people that really went after Jesus were the ones that he entrusted in this way. And that kind of speaks to the nature and character of God. But that suffices to say Jesus led him in his school. A blind, presumptuous beggar who could see better than the religious people who were really blinded where it counted the most. Now look at the, the next one. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Is it okay we just kind of work verse by verse through some text? I'm sorry, I'm just a Sunday school teacher. So um, James now is in the third of his scenarios. You've read, ever read James chapter five? You ever read James? Man, it's not like a poke in the eye from the get-go, isn't it? You know, he starts out, you know, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You're a bunch of big babies, grow up. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's pretty harsh. And can you imagine, though, his big brother is Jesus. We know of at least four uh, additional sons of Mary, plus likely some girls. And so, um, you know, half siblings of Jesus. And, of course, Jesus being the eldest and... Um, I can imagine Mary getting on his case. No disrespect to Mary, favorite of above all women, you know. And but uh, can you imagine Mary getting on James's case growing up. Come on, James, shape up. Why can't you be more like your big brother? You know, come on. You know, oh, mom, he never does anything wrong. It's like you think he's God or something. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm surmising some stuff. But he has this, and then all of a sudden you grow up and you find out your big brother really is God. You know, and so it, it puts a sobriety. It puts a sobriety upon you, and James writes with that. He kind of has that New Yorker, just, you know, pull no punches, no prevarication, right to the point, you know, thing. And, you know, you've read it before, right? So in James chapter 5, he gives three scenarios and our Christian biblical response to them. The first one, anybody remember if you've read it recently? Is anyone happy is the first one. They should what? Sing. Well, that's a, if you're happy, you should sing. You know, that's a good thing. Then rejoice. The second one, anybody remember what that one is? Is anyone troubled? How many people have been troubled in the last two years? 
Now, we know that there are these things called the Bible codes that really give us the true meaning of Scripture. And James says, is anyone troubled, they should pray. But in the Bible codes, what it really means is you should press the caps lock button and rant on social media. Okay, the Bible codes aren't real, by the way. I'm just following James's way of doing things there. No, but is anyone troubled? How many of you ever, seriously, you ever get troubled? I get troubled by a lot of stuff. What's the biblical response? Is anyone troubled? They should pray. Write that one down, for real. I mean, like, it's obvious to us, but typically when we're troubled... You know, they should break dishes. Are they troubled? They should have road rage. Are they troubled? They should yell at somebody. They're troubled. They should complain, you know. Trouble, they should, you know, picket to whatever. They're troubled. We should pray. The Christian response to a disturbance in the force is prayer, right? Remember, remind yourself, how many of you can honestly say that Actually, when you pray about things, you actually receive some peace and some comfort and help from the Lord. We know these things, but this is a really good reminder. And I wonder how much of the torment and anguish and anxieties that we live through, uh, we don't have to if we would follow the biblical protocol. Something's troubling, immediately stop, drop, and pray. Remember that old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? Good theology in a lot of the old hymns. And, um, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain. How many would like needless pain? You know, my teeth are really doing good, but I think I'd like to drill out and get some fillings, you know? I think I'm up for a root canal. Some needless pain sounds good, you know? No, you don't. But we do that. Why? Because we do not take it to the Lord in prayer. Well, this is, is anyone troubled? They should pray. It's kind of what that's based on. And so this is a real good reminder for us. Scenario number three is about physical recovery. Are any of you sick? The Greek word there for sick is physically infirm, right? Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church. Now, let's stop on that word elders for a moment because it's often misunderstood. Because in the United States, a church is a nonprofit recognized uh, nonprofit organization. It requires a board of directors legally, you know, as nonprofits do. So, in our American way of doing Christianity, we merge the idea of a deacon, or and we use it synonymously as elder as well, to be board members for the nonprofit so we can be legally viable and we merge the spiritual and the legal together. But biblically, deacon and elder are not the same thing. And by the way, how many know what really deacons are in the Bible? They're ministry servants, ministry leaders that serve. So, and I, I think you're, I met some of your elders or your deacons here, and that's been pretty good guys and, and folks, and I'm thankful for that. But we just want to make sure that we don't overly Americanize a spiritual thing. I mean, you know, the spiritual is always much more important than the temporal and national. That's a good spot to say yes, okay? And so... But uh, we want to make, and we want to do our due diligence with our country and with our requirements and render unto Caesar and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we want to be biblical. And so deacons are ministry people. And I believe yours are with a heart. I've seen many of them praying with people and stuff. Awesome. So good, good stuff. So this word elder is used in two distinct ways in the New Testament. Number one, it's used as a synonym for pastor. Okay? One of the ways. The other way it's used is in a more general way than deacon. 
It's used as a person who has walked with God. You have some miles on your tires, but you're not necessarily a recognized, vetted leader. So it kind of has these two sides. Like we typically go in the middle and think it's only deacon, but that's not really what it is. I mean, certainly our deacons should be people that are mature, right? But it kind of goes the other way. It's either like the pastors, leaders in that way, or else it's folks that have walked with God for a little while. Now think about this. If you, how many of you have served the Lord for, I don't know, 25 years or more? Give me a wave, all right? Uh, so you served the Lord for a while. You've been through some stuff, haven't you? You've seen the faithfulness of God. Actually, how many of you recognize, I know I should already be dead, right? You know, many, many times over probably. And many of us have forgotten more miracles of God in our lives than we could even remember because we didn't take good notes. And so you see like, you know, you see some young person and, and they're awesome and they're learning how to trust the Lord. They're making a decision about future or college or trade school or all these things. And, and you're praying with them, but you're like, man, I remember those days, but now I'm like, Believe in God for just a, a different level of things because they're at a spot. That is a big deal, by the way, if you're in that spot and God will teach you how to learn from him and hear from him. But as you go through life, you're gonna see God help him. I mean, there are some that are facing like major diagnoses and major conflicts and all this kind of stuff that, that make a decision like that um, farther down in life seem insignificant, even though it's not. Because, but because you've walked through the, those things, you've seen the Lord do those works. This elder business is someone that served the Lord and has been faithful, and you're still standing. You've seen the faithfulness of God. This is kind of the two sides of of the possible meanings for this word, and the Bible doesn't say which one it is, and theologians say it's both. So yeah, I mean, yeah, deacon fits in there, but it's bigger than that. So let me just talk to the seniors for a moment. The American way of viewing seniors is the older you get, the less important you are. The older you get, you know, you're, you know, eh, about 50, you start building your rocking chair. And uh, 15 years later, you're finally done. And by the time you hit 65, you just need to mind your P's and Q's and mind your opinion. Be quiet and eat your cream corn until you fade away. That is unrighteous and unbiblical. The Bible values you very differently as a senior. Most likely, you're someone that's walked with the Lord for some time. You've seen his faithfulness. You've seen them come, you've seen them go, and you've seen God never changes, right? And so you're a person that, you know, you may not have, you know, a position in a church. You may not be a recognized deacon, but you're a grandma or a grandpa who's walked with God. You've seen God's faithfulness. This is you, are any of you sick, you should call for the, the elders, the people of experience, the people who have walked with God, the people who have seen God's faithful hand, the Joshuas who says, I'm 80 years old and I have no teeth, but I'm stronger than I've ever been and we can take the city. Come on, let's, let's kick some Philistines out, you know? I've got, I beat them with my cane, you know, right? Okay? To come and pray over you. I want to tell you, young people, don't follow our American way of minimizing people when they get some snow on the roof, or some people even the snows come off the roof, right? But, but we value you. We value our seniors because, which apparently I'm really close to being in your church because your threshold is so low, and I'm bitter about it. I'm going to pray through. Um, 
I've made an appointment at Rafa Ranch to kind of get some of these issues dealt with. But um, it's, it's like we don't devalue you. We look to you as an example of integrity. We look to you as people that have been through a lot. Like, for example, let's say you're a widow or a widower in your latter years. You've come to trust the Lord in ways that you never thought you'd have to. You've experienced the faithful hand of God in your life when your world was rocked and your security and your conscience and life were totally transformed and you still love and serve the Lord. Now you know Jesus even deeper because he's come and fulfilled a role in your life that you look for a human to fulfill. You know him. These are, I'm telling you, young people, you need help from the Lord. You need healing from the Lord. You need wisdom from the Lord. Have a godly grandma or grandpa pray for you especially in this fatherless generation. This is kind of this, the field of what's going on here. Have them come and pray over you, anointing you with oil. What kind of oil? Well, of course, essential oils. And so... Um, <laughs> which are available for sale on our table. No, they're not. Okay, I heard. Uh, now, I know it's cool if you, you go for that. But I prefer non-essential oils. Um, Crisco, WD-40, et cetera, those sorts of things, motor oil, Rotella tea. Um, how many know some people, because of their hygienic practices, they make their own oil, you know? And it's like some people, I've gone to anoint them, like, ah, you're already greasy. Just take it. Let's just pray, you know? Um, but how many know there's no, in this oil, there's no magic in this. It's not like they take olive oil and then pastor puts two drops of Red Bull in it, shakes it up and puts it on the communion table. This is not alchemy or witchcraft or sorcery, right? It's symbolism. We're saying that I believe that when the oil is placed upon me, that I'm welcoming, a, it's a sacred thing, and there's a special moment that I'm welcoming the Holy Spirit's power and grace to fall upon me. It's very, very beautiful, but there's no magic in this. It's, you know, and, and just to so you know if you've never anointed people, you don't use the whole bottle. It's just symbolism. I've seen people go a little crazy and ruin a silk, silk blouse by dumping the whole can of Wesson on them. It's symbolism. Easy there, tiger, right? So, um, so anoint them with oil. How? How do you anoint them with oil? In the name of the Lord, with the focus on Jesus. Because you got symbolism involved, and we're people that want to have some kind of tangible. We want a graven image. But no, 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 That's, the oil is just the symbol to help us. But the focus is Jesus. Really, you see how he's always focusing on Jesus? And I love this, verse 15. Such a prayer offered in faith. Faith in what? What's the text say? Jesus, right? Will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well. Seniors, you have a healing ministry. The Lord will make you well, and if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. What in the world? How many of you know that the moment you confess your sins, God's forgiven you? You know that theologically? But how many of you know the enemy loves to use your sin against you, right? You got your hands up singing, I exalt thee, you know, you're just in the third heaven, and all of a sudden the devil reminds you of the great transgression of 1983, you know? And your posture changes, and you're, oh, God, I know I've asked you to forgive me, but forgive me, oh, Lord, I just, oh. And he has a way of wielding your past against you. That's called condemnation, 
which is a, a spiritual, but it's a negative, demonic spiritual revelation of your sin. And it feels a lot like conviction from the Holy Spirit, which is a spiritual revelation of your sin, but it's from God. A real easy way to discern the difference between the two, because a lot of Christians struggle with condemnation. A real easy way to discern which is which, simple test. It's like a test strip. It's super easy. You go, hmm, have I ever asked the Lord to forgive me of this sin before? If the answer is yes, then you know this awareness of my sin that's trying is condemnation from the devil. You go, ah, that's just what he does. But if you say, no, I've never confessed that sin, then you take it as conviction from the Holy Spirit and you repent. It's real easy to tell the difference. But one of the reasons why this is so important, and Jesus is so thorough in what he does, a lot of people believe their own conjecture, their own ideas, their own processing over the word of God. And there are a lot of people that go, I've had people come up to me, well, I'm battling with, you know, kidney failure because when I was seven years old, I shoplifted a candy bar from the corner store. And they're connecting the dot. Well, the reason why, I, you know, is because this. Notice what God does here. His healing, not only physical, he comes in covering and he gives us a backstop to know that we're really forgiven. What a, what a beautiful, I talk about easing a troubled mind and a troubled heart here. If you committed any, you will be forgiven. Now look at the next verse. He says, therefore, uh, next slide please, confess your sins to each other. Boy, that's a big one. And I, it's not there, but I would just add, and I'll step away from the pulpit, I would just add, don't confess your sins to a gossip or a manipulator. Right? I mean, that's important. But many people, they deal with incredible inward battles and struggles spiritually and that they don't, they don't want anyone to know because of, because of pride. It's the way humans do things. And so they keep it all bottled up and they've got a raging forest fire inside that never seems to break through their veneer of smile on the outside. But just confessing your sins and struggles to someone exposes it to the light and has tremendous delivering power. Confess your sins to each other. Hope you have a, a few friends that you can be transparent with and that they say to you, hey, how are you really doing? Seriously, what's going on? Come on, lay it on the table. And, the, and they're able to share in that way. Um, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Now he's speaking to everyone that you may be healed. Now, probably most of us know of uh, James 5, 16b, the second part here. I was raised in church in the 70s and early 80s, and all, almost all my memorization is in King James. I mentioned that this morning. So anybody know James 5, 16, 17 in, in uh, King James? I'm going to start it, start it with you. You'll pick it up, right? Ready? Here we go. Say it out loud if you know. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I mean, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? And it's good and it's accurate when we don't talk like that anymore. But I mean, it's like kind of majestic. You go, wow, that sounds like something, but I'm not really sure what it is, but it sounds like something. When our kids were little, our oldest son, Braden, uh, particularly, but we, uh, we had them memorize scripture. And with him, we decided to do it all King James because he was like a toddler and it sounded really cute, you know. And we didn't do that with the others but because you learn as parents. But um, this is one of the first scriptures. And he would say, like, three years old, and he was just really, 
you know, uh, his teeth were coming in and he was really plosive and spittle when he was talking. He would just go for it. He'd go, the feck, I got it on video, on VHS. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. He's just spraying spit the whole time. Effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a pail of munch. It's like, I don't, I, we never corrected him. He probably still thinks that. I don't know, but, but because it was just so cute, you know. Uh, I don't know what a pail of munch is. Maybe it's something from a movie theater popcorn bucket or something. I don't know. But um, this is NLT, and NLT is a, is a really good modern translation. Um, it's not the living Bible, which was a paraphrase. NLT is a good, and I'm, I'm sure if you're, I like to change my version I'm reading every year because it just gives me a fresh eye. I always kind of go back to the New American Standard for study because it's so hyper-literal. Literal, it's like an interlinear. You can do language study on that. But NLT is, I've fallen in love with it. Um, it's the first Bible translation, modern English translation, um, ever to allow Pentecostals in on the translations. Uh, they've always been excluded. And so, for example, the Assemblies of God, one of our greatest theologians, Doug Ose, did all the Corinthians. And, and Dale Brueggemann and, and Wave Nunnally, some of our best educators, uh, were involved in overseeing Acts and some re- really cool stuff. Anyway, it's a good translation. I'm not trying to change your Bible reading. But, but this, for me personally, if you read the Greek, in my humble, unqualified opinion, this is the best English translation of James 5.17. He says... The earnest prayer, earnest, the word earnest is sincere, heartfelt, compassionate, earnest, okay? Effectual, but sincere. In other words, you're really allowing yourself to care for the person with honesty. The earnest prayer of a righteous person. Now, most of us don't self-identify as being righteous, you know, but where does the Bible teach our righteousness comes from? Jesus, okay? The Bible even calls us saints, which is kind of funny because most of us think of it in a Catholic version of being a dead person that had, did miracles and validated by the Vatican, you know? But saint is someone who's made holy because of Jesus. It's not saying we're perfect, but it says we know where our righteousness comes from. How many know the moment we're saved, the robes of Christ's righteousness fall upon our unworthy shoulders, you know? So this is saying someone that knows where their righteousness comes from. The sincere, compassionate prayer, when you really care and give yourself to care for the person you're praying for, knowing you belong to God, his righteousness, that kind of prayer, great power and produces wonderful results. Now the word wonderful doesn't mean to us today what it meant in the writing of scripture. To us, one, that bread is so spectacular. It's a miracle, it's wonder bread. And what happens if you smear miracle whip on wonder bread? It's the supernatural, you know, I'm going to ascend to heaven, you know, whatever. And, and, uh, what is it? it is wonder-filled, awe-inspiring. Okay, that's the word. Makes you go, like the Maxell tape guy, your hair blown back. Wow, awe and wonder, wide-eyed, open-jawed. I've never seen anything like this before. That kind of results. You're walking with Jesus, and you're really caring for people, praying for them. Guess what? Fasten your seatbelts. God's going to blow your mind. Now, this gives us the five avenues. Here are the points. We're almost done. The points are nothing tonight. Here we go. Number one. Go to the next one, if you would, please. Five avenues to receive healing. There are more, but these are the big five ways. It's like the five pipelines. Um, 
I, we got an electrician here, so you understand ohms, right? You understand resistance, right? So basically imagine a bathtub full of water. If you have just one drain, it will drain at a certain pace. But if you have five drains on that bathtub, it will drain quickly. Think about the generosity of God. There are five avenues from which his healing power flows, but his bathtub never runs dry, Right? So he's been so generous. These are the big five from the Bible. So number one, please. First of all, personal prayer. How many of you are a person? And you can pray, okay? Did you know it's not wrong or sinful or unethical to pray for yourself? In fact, you belong to Jesus because you prayed for yourself, right? Jesus, have mercy, forgive me, cleanse me. It's okay, you know, people, the devil will use all kinds of, oh, you're too selfish. Well, I don't know about you, but I need more prayer for myself. I'm a work in progress, you know, and I need more help. But we want to pray for others as well. But a great example of this, our text, Mark 10, 47. Jesus crying out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. You know, you can pray for yourself to be healed. It's what Bartimaeus did. Look at the next one, please person with a special gift. We get this from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and particularly in verse 30, Paul actually personifies the healing gift as literally in the Greek, one with a special gift of healing. Did you know that it indeed, there are different people that God has invested in them, a different level, a different intensity or voltage or whatever level you want to say, uh, just a higher fluency and frequency in operating and healing than the rest of us. They're not better, it's just a different gift. You know, maybe you've been around ministries like that. I mentioned Catherine Kuhlman today. I mean, it, you know, she lived a very terrible life and a life of pain and loneliness, but God used her as a conduit of healing, not perfect. She was a, a textbook hysteric psychologically, but God used her in powerful ways. How I many you know God likes to use us in and through our brokenness and that he lavished upon her a very extraordinary healing gift. And the way Paul teaches this in 1 Corinthians 12, it's kind of interesting because he's speaking to a local church and he's telling you, and in turn all of us, hey, local church, God's placed the possibility of someone in your church or some people in your church to operate in fluent, frequent healing gifts. And I want to ask you, Painesville Assembly or whatever church you may attend, have you discovered yet? Have you cultivated, locating and fostering and growing and maturing? the healing gifts that are present biblically within your church? Because kind of missing out, if not. Then look at the next one. Elders or leaders. So we have, of course, the elder means pastor some occasions in Paul's writing, and he uses that word both as that, and James uses it as, in a broader sense, as people that have seen the faithfulness of God. Not just senior citizens, you've served the Lord for a while, you've seen some stuff. We all should be growing to be an elder in the faith, right? Not elderly, because we kind of have some ideas on those words, but elder as in, I've served the Lord. I've seen, How many really want to grow up and be mature in the things of the Lord and be a person of faith and integrity? So this is what all of us will eventually be if we're not already there. And then look at number four, a sovereign act of God. Boy, that word sovereign is loaded, so let me explain to you how I mean by that. The way I'm using this word, because this means different things for different people, the way I'm using this word is, out of the blue, unexpectedly, Jehovah Zappa, 
you know? How many know God can do anything? Like a lot of people go, you got to have faith to be healed. Well, look at Lazarus. Jesus intentionally dilly-dallies and lets Lazarus die. Yeah, it's, it's a word. And so he, he gets there and what does Mary and Martha say? Master, have you only gotten sooner? He would have lived. Yeah, you're, you missed it. Took the slow train, Jesus, the slow donkey, you know. Never mind that he was busy healing the centurion's son and raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, but anyway. So Jesus gets there, and what? It's too late. Oh, Lord, if you had only been here sooner. But I know anything's possible with you, which makes you go, oh, maybe he, they're saying projecting some faith towards Jesus to heal right now. Jesus, I know he'll live again in the resurrection. Not hope for right now, but I know, you know, the end you'll raise him up. So they, you know, have faith in Jesus, but not faith for his immediate healing like some people think you need to have, which I don't believe is a biblical concept. Our faith is always in Jesus. Jesus goes, it's really cool in the Greek, he goes, resurrection future tense? I am the resurrection and the life present tense, you know? Who that believes right now in me will live and not die. Wow. They go, what? Lazarus, open up the stove, open up the grave. Lazarus, get your carcass out here. No one there is projecting any faith for his immediate healing. Not Mary, not Martha, not Lazarus. Lazarus doesn't have any faith. He doesn't even have blood pressure, right? But Jesus operates around the limitations and does his gracious work. How many can recognize the Lord operating around your limitations in life? So stop putting a burden on your shoulder. I can't believe, I just I can't pray, I can't believe. If you believe Jesus is the Son of God, let him come and do his thing. Uh, my life was significantly changed in 2015 when I was healed of a 25-year-old back injury from snow skiing when I was a teenager. And, um, and amazing, I lived with pain and bone on bone. I'd been consulted at Mayo Clinic for surgeries and they're like always, you're too young, we start, because I had no disc between my sacrum and L5 and a potato chip was their scientific term for me between L4 and L5. And, uh, and just all bone on bone sensation grinding and all kinds of nerve issues and all that stuff from all the damage and arthritis. It even fro had frozen together with arthritis once and had to go and have it over a week's time slowly broken open again. Oh my, that's not fun. That's even worse than listening to Nickelback. I mean, it was torture. And, um, but, but in April of 2015, I was just in a church service. I was attending and sitting in the front row about where pastor is. Well, out of the blue, unexpected, not asking, not even thinking about it other than, man, my back really hurts. Out of the blue, just worshiping the Lord and the power of God hit me and I celebrated my healing a year later at a trampoline park, you know? I mean, it's just, you know, my life's been different since that day out of the blue, and I didn't do anything to, it's not like I finally had solved the puzzle and, you know, figured out who all the, you know, it's not like that at all. It's just out of the blue, rather unexpected and totally undeserved. I mean, if I got what I'd be deserved uh, or was deserving, I'd be in eternal deep fry right now, you know? 
but just one of those, wow, like a Lazarus kind of a thing. Then number, please, um, any believer, not believer, but believer with a V, right? Okay, so any believer, James says, verse 16 and 17, therefore pray one for another. He's not talking elders anymore. He's now addressing everybody. How many of you are a Christian? Okay. Almost every hand. If you're sitting by someone that didn't raise their hand, lead them to the Lord real quick, all right? So any Christian, therefore, pray for one another that you may be healed. The compassionate, sincere, earnest prayer of someone who knows that Jesus is their righteousness has great power and produces wonder-filled awe-inspiring results. How many would like Jesus to use you in healing gifts? But you just need to know the secret, and I'm going to give this to you as we close. The secret is this. When you go to lay hands on people, you want to be really careful because there are some neurological connections in the brain that you can assist. So you want to, when you lay your hand on them, you want to, about 45 foot-pounds of torque with a little English on it. And that will just, standing on one foot facing Jerusalem, right? You want to make sure, no, I'm just being facetious. Where's your faith in? Not your technique, not how good your prayers are, not how poetic you know, most of us, because we live in a performance-oriented society, most of us, when we go to pray, we're more concerned about what we say, rolling our R's and getting it right. But have you ever noticed that God kind of hears our heart more than he ever really hears our words? This may surprise you, but on many occasions, in a loud church environment or a loud uh, office environment or work environment, truck stops, other places... Um, we've been at, when I prayed for people who are sick, I've misunderstood what their healing request was. And I verbally out loud in front of them prayed for them to be healed of something that they didn't have, but the Lord healed them of the right thing anyway. Does that surprise anybody? So our biggest concern in praying for someone, twofold, number one, that that person feels the compassion of the Lord flowing through our lives, earnest, sincere. If the person doesn't feel the love of God, we're on some level not doing things properly. And if we're more concerned about getting it right and performance-oriented, typically when we're uncomfortable, we hurry up to get it over with. Well, if you hurry up, you're not being caring. And when you hurry 100%, you miss the Holy Spirit. Slow down and care. Your main job is that that person feels the attention and love of Jesus flowing through you. That's your main concern. You can hem all around and a bunch of dangling participles in your sentence and whatever, and it doesn't matter, but do they feel the love of God? That's the big concern. And then number two, that you know your prayer and faith and focus and righteousness is all coming from Jesus. That's, that's how you pray for the sick. So again, it's not, well, you know, I'm going to whack my empty hand on your empty head and you either get it if you don't, if you have enough faith. That's just so yucky and proud, isn't it? And so me-centered rather than being Jesus-centered. But when we pray for someone, we want them to feel like they're the object of all of the love and attention of God because they are. 
And so when we go to pray in just a moment, we're going to do things a little differently. If you came tonight going, oh, I want the guy from out of town to pray for me, because how many know people from out of town have a better anointing than the local variety? I'm rolling my eyes if you can't see it. I don't have, I'm not somebody with a special gift for healing. I mean, we pray for people all the time and see them healed, but I, I, I operate in number five just because Jesus is really good and it's just, just appeal to him. And, and I found that the moment when, if you just take time and pray with people, slow down, take time. The moment that you see them go, that means I'm moving from being tense about it to I sense some comfort and grace here. The moment they, they kind of take a sigh and relax and sense, the moment you can sense the presence and love of God, you're already 90% of the way there. Just slow down and pray until the Lord tells you to stop. Well, what am I going to say? No big deal. Just your job is to get the bucket of God's love and just slather it on them until you run out, right? That's the main goal. And if you're more concerned about what they think about you, which is a normal human experience, we got to fix that because we're the most unimportant one in this healing process, right? So what we're going to do in just a moment, I'm going to invite anyone that wants to be baptized in the Spirit in a moment to come forward, and maybe the pastors and their spouses can help us pray for them. I'll give you some instructions off mic because we're going to set the rest of you free to pray for the sick. And I'm going to ask you in just a moment that those that don't come forward to receive baptism in the Spirit, that we're going to get in groups of three or four. Everybody say three or four. Just to be clear, I don't know how it is in, in northern Ohio, but three or four means three or four. Okay, it's not two or five or ten. I, I literally, I mean, we're and and you will be you will receive an assessment of a penalty tithe additional if you're in a group under three or bigger than four. All right. Now there's some reasons why in there. I want to have the right group dynamic, and I want us all to end our prayer times in a similar time frame. So if you just be gracious with me in that and following that, get in a group of three or four. You can move to the aisle. You can sit down. When you get in that group, do not hold hands. As the old hymn says, keep your hands to yourself, okay? All right, get in a group, get in a circle, just stand there. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm giving these real kind of specific instructions because some people that have never done this, they just need to know where the handrails are so that they know they're going to come up for air in a moment. It's going to be very easy where you're not going to be doing something that's making you the center of attention. But just simply, we're going to pick someone in the group to go first. You just elect someone. Floyd, you're first. How can we pray for you? And without giving big, huge background, you can just pick a couple labels. It's my, my back hurts and my foot stinks and I hate my mother-in-law or whatever your needs are, okay? Sorry, I'm not trying to target you tonight. But just, just kind of, uh, you know, just some, some simple things. If you're deeply private, it's okay to say it's unspoken or it's personal. That's fine. And you can mention it. All you're doing is you're giving the other people that are going to start praying for you something to talk about to help them not be uncomfortable, See how the body of Christ works, you know? It's compassionate that way. And so once you hear just a couple, don't, no big story, not 1976 and the bicentennial, I slipped on a banana peel and fell off the Statue of Liberty and whatever. No, I mean, just no story, just, just a couple things. Hey, here's a few things, okay? And then the other two or three people in the group are going to encircle you and they're going to stretch their hands to you. If you're comfortable with them laying a hand on your shoulder, that would be very, very appropriate. Ask that you don't lay hands on heads. I've had all kinds of problems with laying hands on heads over the years. I've got this gear ring because I love to work on cars. Uh, my wife got me in, and uh, just like a, 
the stainless steel thing, but it's got these little burrs that stick out. And I've had people insist that I really lay hands on their head because they think it makes a difference, like higher voltage or something. And now I have removed the hairpiece of a man in New Jersey. And I've removed the wig of a very high-profile government wife. Um, so anyway, there's like a possum stuck to your hand. And um, it's true. It's funny stories. I've also had the lice crawling on there. I've had all kinds of experiences. But um, it's just symbolism. We're believing when we lay hands on someone that the hand of Jesus is being welcomed, right? It's beautiful symbolism like the oil. We're believing the hand of Jesus. Lay, so person will give their request, then the other two or three people will encircle them, lay a stretch of hand towards them, or if the person's comfortable, lay your hand on their shoulder, and you're all going to begin to pray for that one person on top of each other. Not the bold person prays and the quiet people go, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Your job is all two or three of you on top of each other is to smother that person in love and compassion and prayer. And not only for what they requested, pray, pray for blessing in every area of their life or any way the Holy Spirit might lead. And if you kind of lose your train of thought, you can pray in the Spirit, you can continue to pray. Your job is to pray until you feel a definite from the Holy Spirit, you're done. Stay connected until, keep the, keep the roast in the oven until it's done. Most people stop praying when they run out of things to say, which is saying as long as I'm in intellectual control of this, I'm comfortable. Right? But just trust the Lord. Let it flow. And then you'll resign. It might be a minute. I don't know. Don't time it. But it won't be 20 seconds. It'll be a little longer than that. And, and then you'll all feel everybody will kind of quit. And then you go, okay, George, you're next. How can we pray for you? And you're just going to go in a circle with everyone taking the turn to be in the middle and receiving prayer from everyone else. If you're praying, your main goal is not to be the leader. Your main goal is to just be a conduit of the love and goodness of God reaching up to Jesus and reaching out in love to that person with sincerity and just see the wonder-filled results of God. Are you ready? Stand with me to your feet, if you would. Let's take a stretch. You've been there for a long time sitting. I bet your cans are sore. Sorry about that. Take a big old, you'll go back to normal length sermons next week. Sorry. Take a stretch. Reach for the sky as high as you can. As high as you can, reach up. Stretch your carcass, okay? Now reach down as low as you can. Don't whack your head in the pew in front of you. Put one hand flat on the ground, then the other, and then one leg straight up, and then the other one straight up. You got it? I would do it. I just don't want to show off, all right? Okay, you shake out your arms for a moment, all right? Okay. Now will you join me in reaching your hands to heaven to the Lord? Come on, let's just draw near to him. Oh, Jesus, I need you. Come on, lift your voice with me. Jesus, there's no one like you. You're my hope. You're my future. You're the object of my faith. And I love you, Lord. Oh, Jesus, I love you. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior right now, you can just call out to him, Jesus, have mercy on me like Bartimaeus. Forgive me of my sins, and he'll do that right now in your life. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for making things so easy. Everything goes back to you. You are the center. You are the hub. All the spokes lead to you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you that all you require of me is to stay focused and pressing into Jesus and then caring for others. It's just, it's such an easy pipeline. Oh, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Now, Jesus, would you make it easy for us to love and care for others, to get over ourselves and grant great favor and ease in ministering your healing grace. Would you teach us tonight as we pray? We not only want to be conduits of your goodness, we want to learn of you and learn your ways as we pray. 
Amen. 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 If you'd like to receive baptism in the Spirit, would you just quickly sneak up to the front, all across the front, real fast? Otherwise, would you begin to get in groups of three or four? You can be in your seat. You can be in there. You guys, yeah, oh, thank you so much. You're amazing. Um, And if you would play that Aerosmith song that I put the music up for, that'd be great, okay? All right. So otherwise, would you begin to get in groups of three or four? You can stand up, sit down, okay? Get in a circle. Don't hold hands. Just get in a circle, And we're going to allow that any believer stuff to happen, all right? If you're praying for baptism in the Spirit, let me get you over here just for a quick moment in the middle. If you're praying for baptism in the Spirit, let me just get you over here just for a moment in the middle to get some instructions for you. Come on over here real quick, folks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We pray that you're encouraged by this message. For more information about Painesville Assembly of God, visit PainesvilleAG.com.